Welcome to Getting In, a college coach conversation hosted by Elizabeth Heaton. There are so many challenges involved in the college process, including choosing the right college, planning a payment strategy, creating a high school plan, and much more. The team of experts from College Coach are here to help you find some, if not all, of the answers you need. Now, here is your host, Elizabeth Heaton. Good afternoon, and welcome to the first August edition of Getting In for 2019. I love August. Um, Back in Arizona, where I grew up, uh, August brought the best part of the summer, monsoon evenings when the air smelled of creosote and thunder cracked through the sky. We'd sit out on the back porch and watch the storm roll in, the shadows of our pecan trees waving at us through the darkness. In Portland, August is our last gasp of summer before the leaves turn and the rain returns, and we start planning trips to the pumpkin patch instead of going down to the river. Now, for high school seniors, August is also a month of transition. Summer is ending. I'm sorry to tell you that, but summer is ending. School's coming back. And oh my gosh, it is time to start thinking seriously about college applications. There are just five months between today and January 1st. And although you'll spend these months working hard on your essays and other application materials, the good news is that you're less than half a year away from being done with college applications. If you play your cards right. On today's show, we're going to kick off August with answers to your questions about admissions and financial aid, but we also want to use this first segment today to address common questions we get in the admissions world about high schools. Joining me to lend her expertise is Joy Biscornet, one of our many terrific college admissions experts here at College Coach. Hey, Joy. Good afternoon, Ian. Hey, it's great to have you on the show, and you know the premise for this segment is um, we get questions all the time that begin with the phrase, my high school does blank this way. How are colleges going to receive that? And you, before you came to college coach, used to work within a high school in a, in a guidance office, correct? Yeah. Awesome. And how often did you find yourself in a position where you were talking to admissions counselors about the kind of program and curriculum that you had at your high school? I found it fairly often, especially when college uh, admission representatives would come and visit uh, the high school where I worked during their fall travel season. And in addition to chatting with students uh, that were interested in the various colleges, um, the admission reps would also sit down and spend some time with me, uh, just making sure that they fully understood any new initiatives or changes that were happening um, with our curriculum so that they could really get a sense of what was available to students when they were reading their applications later in the year. Right. And so admissions officers are really invested in that kind of um, learning that information and having a good grasp and a handle on what different schools have to offer. But the school that you worked at was um, a private or independent girls' school, um, and is one, I think, that you have a lot of admission officers that are coming through and engaging with you as the counselor when you were working as a counselor there. What about schools that are larger public high schools? Maybe they don't get as much foot traffic in terms of admission officers coming through. How did you, when you were an admission officer, learn about those schools and the kinds of programs that they provided for their students? I relied heavily on... Um, the high school profile, that is a document that's sent as part of the school's submission 
um, to support and advocate for um, a student who's applying. So this is a document published yearly by the school, which gives details about the school itself, so location, size, uh, graduating class, any special programs, um, and they also will often talk about uh, courses that are available to students and also any restrictions that might come into play um, as a student is uh, choosing their courses from year to year. So it's a, it's a very comprehensive document that is rich with information for admission counselors to learn about uh, individual schools that they might not be able to visit um, during their travel season. Yeah, it, it, it sets sort of the parameters for what to expect for a student from a particular school. And, you know, some of these school profiles are a single page. Some of them are little booklets. Um, they can have a lot of information in there. I, I remember one of the most, <clears throat> excuse me, one of the most helpful profiles that I saw back when I was reading actually had grade distributions by course within the particular school. So I could see what percentage of students got A's in a class, what percentage got B's, what percentage got C's, uh, which was hugely helpful. I don't know that all the students would have loved that that was in there, but it was very helpful for me as a college admissions counselor. And I think that the profile is something that very few families are aware even exists. And um, I would strongly recommend that if you're listening to this right now and you're near a computer, um, that you go search for your school profile. It's typically going to be on your high school's website. Um, if you can't find it on the school website, you can usually do a web search that says your school name and then school profile. Um, and you might be able to, to track that down and, and see what that information looks like. Um, Joy, let's talk a little bit about some of the things that are contained on the, the profile. You alluded to a few things. Um, I wanted to talk especially about course level. Um, you know, AP courses, IB courses to a lesser extent, but those are sort of the big um, course designations that convey rigor to a reader, uh, convey rigor to students and, and parents. Um, and there are schools that don't offer those kinds of courses or that offer different numbers of those kinds of courses. How, as an admission officer, do we go through the process of thinking about what the rigor is for a particular student, given the context of what is offered at their high school? So this is a, a question that um, a lot of students uh, wonder about as they're choosing their, their courses, but also when they're considering college options. And um, they wonder if, if the, the college will actually hold the student accountable for the, the number of uh, honors or AP or IB classes, which is to a lesser extent. Um, but that profile is, is where this, um, this really comes into play, so that if a school has the resources to offer um, a full complement of AP courses, then a student is going to be evaluated within the context of, of those offerings. At the same time, if a student attends a high school that might have a limited number of AP courses that are offered, that's going to be taken into consideration when evaluating that student's transcripts and their curriculum choices. A student can't be faulted for not taking classes that aren't offered to them. So um, overall, admission offices, particularly those most selective, uh, for, for the most selective colleges and universities, are going to be looking for trends on a student's transcripts 
um, not only trends in grades, but trends in rigor. To see if mm-hmm. a student is challenging herself more and more each year. So right. if there are a number of AP courses offered at the high school, then it's likely that the admission office would like to see the student taking on more and more AP courses where appropriate each year of high school. But if there are a total of two, maybe three APs offered at that high school, then the admission office is going to get a sense of who the students are that can that are maxing out that curriculum, if you will, by taking two or those three AP courses. Yeah, I I love that you took a moment there to talk about trends, not only in grades, but in rigor um, and and how students are sort of building on whatever classes they've taken early in their high school career to take more challenging classes as they get older. And and that doesn't necessarily mean that you have to always increase the number of APs that you have. Uh, It just means that you need to continue to develop and explore and, and take more challenging courses not only because it demonstrates to colleges that you can handle a rigorous curriculum, but also because it helps you build towards college-level coursework. If you're taking fairly steady levels of courses across all four years, when you hit college as a freshman, you're going to see a huge jump in terms of the expectations intellectually and in terms of workload that are going to be placed on you. So it's a good idea to aim for that rigor to increase over time, to trend upward so that you are prepared for that first year Um, of school. Now, Joy, I think that there are pluses and minuses associated with, you know, going to schools that have fewer APs, going to those that have more. Um, Sometimes parents will say, well, why don't I just send my student to the school that only offers three APs? And then he only has to take three APs to be at the very top end of rigor. Um, Another parent might say, I don't know if I want to send my student to a school that has 20 APs where students are doing 11 or 12 of them in their uh, career, because then my student has to do those things to keep up. Uh, How do we think about students sort of being successful within the context of their school and trade-offs that might come with, um, you know, uh, demonstrating certain capabilities to colleges, given those context clues? That's a really good question, and it, it is a it is a challenge when making those decisions about where to send um, your child for their, their high school education. I think overall, uh, what an admission office uh, looks to determine is how a student has taken advantage of the opportunities and resources available to them at their high school, not just in the classroom but also with extracurricular activities and other ways of engagement. So they're they're looking at the application holistically to see what a student has done over their four years of high school. So for a student who may go to a high school that has 10, 20 APs, um, they should be making, again, those choices that are appropriate for them and really showing um, mastery of the courses that they're in, regardless of if it's an honors level course or an AP course, and making those choices so that they can also be actively engaged outside of the classroom. Because if a student is fully focused on academics only and has taken several APs um, each year, as an example, but hasn't given themselves the time to really grow and drive and explore outside the classroom with Mm -hmm. clubs and organizations and different activities, students are sort of one-dimensional 
in that way. They, they don't really afford the admission office the opportunity to get to see the potential impact that they'll make as a whole on a college campus. And yeah. for those students who, um, when parents say, well, I'll, I'll just send my student to the school that has a few APs, because um, then they'll only have to take those few to be at the top of their class, that doesn't necessarily guarantee success either. And you also have to think about what um, you might be sacrificing overall for your student's experience if you send them to a school that has um, limited options, if you feel that they would really benefit and excel from um, a larger uh, choice of, of um, options when it comes to um, their classes and, and that yeah. level of rigor. Yeah, Joy, I love the way that you're framing this because, you know, sort of implicit in my question was this idea of how do I find a way for my student to keep up with other students, right? That I that they are aware of the level of rigor that other students are taking and comparing themselves and measuring themselves by the academic achievements of other kids within their school. And I think the way that you're responding really sort of changes that focus and says, where can your student thrive? Not only inside the classroom, but outside of the classroom. How can they make adva- take advantage of all the opportunities that are going to be available to them? And, you know, that's going to be different depending on different institutions that you choose. But we ultimately, I think when we get this question from families about is it better to go to a school that has three APs or a school that has 20 APs, uh, is to avoid that direct question and instead talk more about which one is going to bring out the best in your student, which one is going to confer on them the most opportunities, not just academically, but also personally, so that they can grow towards their their college experience. Um, There is an implicit conversation that we're having here, and I want to touch on, um, we've got about three minutes left, but I want to touch on class rank, because class rank is something that is really important in certain states like Texas. It's something that I think was a really big part of how students were evaluated 15, 20 years ago, but is now something that is much less common. Uh, How does the presence or absence of rank impact the way an admission officer thinks about a student's application? It's interesting that you brought up Texas because Texas is a state in which a ranking class um, can play a role in the admission process, but it's, it's still not the end-all, be-all um, to the college process. Um, because if you think about it, a student's um, academic record and their course selection, so those honors and AP classes or IB classes that we've been talking about, as well as their achievement in those classes, informs the class rank. So it really goes back to the work that a student is doing on the day-to-day in the classroom and the choices that they're making that um, can determine where they might fall in in a large group. But more and more schools are moving away from posting a ranking class, I think for a couple of reasons. One, they understand that it, it doesn't give the full picture of um, what a student has done over their high school career. And it also, I think, adds to the stress or the, of the, or the frenzy within the college process of saying, oh, if I'm number one in the class, then, you know, I've got it made. But if I might be in, say, the top 20% of the class, does that ruin my choices? And I, I think that more and more we don't want students to be so hung up on numbers and really look at themselves as what they have to offer as a whole. 
Right. So even in places like Texas, where um, a rank may determine if you have automatic entry as an in-state resident to the public university option, that's not it. it. You still have to go through a very holistic review that digs into who you are as a high school student to be admitted to a particular major. Um, so I think ranking class, if it's on a student's transcript for some institutions, it may play a role. For others, a ranking class is, is not part of the review process to, to determine a student's overall fit and potential admission to a university. Yeah, I think that there is a, a tendency that we have when we talk about things like college admission to want to reduce things to very simple factors like GPA, class rank, test scores. But admissions officers are very much invested in unpacking those single numbers to understand what informs them. What creates that GPA? What creates that class rank? Those are important background details that help to give a bigger picture of who a student is in the context of their high school. Um, And I think we're going to have in the Q&A coming up in the next couple of segments, another question that sort of touches on this space as well with with another example of school-specific context. But uh, Joy, I want to thank you for coming on and giving a really great primer for that kind of conversation to talk about how high schools can be different and how students can understand the way that difference plays out in the admission process. Thanks a lot for coming on. Thanks for having me, Ian. Of course. uh, Folks, when we come back, we are going to be diving into your questions for two segments on both admissions and college finance. So don't go away. Become our friend on Facebook. Post your thoughts about our shows and network on our timeline. Visit Facebook.com forward slash Voice America. If you're a parent of a high school student, you've probably heard a lot of scary stories about college admissions, about the growing number of applicants, the shrinking number of spots, about how even valedictorians are being turned away. For families of hopeful college students, it's impossible not to worry. But at College Coach, we take the worry out. Our advisors are former senior admissions and college finance officers from all over the country, so they can give you advice that nobody else can about what classes to take, how to prepare for standardized tests, what options are available to pay for college, and most importantly, what admissions officers are looking for when they read an application. We've got more than 15 years of experience and a track record that's helped every single student get into college, most into their top choice schools. So make the decision to come work with College Coach and start your child down the road to the decision that really matters, the one in the envelope that says yes. Visit www.getintocollege.com forward slash getting dash in. Stimulating talk gets those synapses in the brain inspired really fast. All the time. The number one internet talk station where your opinion counts. VoiceAmerica.com. You are listening to Getting In, a College Coach Conversation. To reach Elizabeth Heaton or her guest today, please call in to 1-866-472-5788. That's 1-866-472-5788. Or send an email to gettingin.voiceamerica at gmail.com. Now, back to the show. All right, folks, welcome back to the show. Now, one of the things that I think we enjoy a lot here at College Coach 
is answering your questions. And when we first started this radio show a few years ago now, uh, we didn't have so many listener questions to be able to bring on the air and, and answer. But now we get lots of them because we've got lots more listeners. And we want to thank you for providing those questions to us, uh, asking them of us. Um, and we're really glad that we can have these conversations um, that are really built on the, the areas where you're curious about learning more. Um, joining me today to answer the college finance questions so that I don't give bad information about money uh, is my colleague from out east, uh, Shannon Vasconcelos. Hey, Shannon, welcome back to the show. Hi, Ian. Thanks. I love being here. I know you do. And you also are our social media maven and um, know how different people can get in touch with us. So if we have listeners out there who say, hey, I've got a question I want to ask, um, what are some ways that they can get in touch with us on social media to present those questions to our team? Oh, my goodness, yes. Anywhere. We're all over social media. Um, our Facebook page is where we probably talk to the, the most folks. Um, so follow us on Facebook. It's just College Coach. You can find us there. Um, we have a, we're on Twitter, Pinterest. We have a brand, brand spanking new Instagram page. Our handle is at CollegeCoachBH. Uh, stands for Bright Horizons. That, that's part of the, the company that we are part of. So at College Coach BH. So if you are on Instagram, follow us there. We've got lots of great brand new content there. And you can always leave us comments, send us DMs with your questions, and um, we will get back to you. That's right. And it, it'll even help you maybe to see what we look like. Since you only ever hear our voices, um, <laughs> it'll be an right. opportunity to get a visual on yes. us uh, as college We are all educators. very, very good looking. I'll just, That's right. I'll just tease that. So, <laughs> so if you want to find out more, follow us. <laughs> and and totally humble as well. Just totally humble. Um, <laughs> Absolutely. <laughs> so Shannon, let's, let's kick it off. I know we've got quite a few questions to work through. I'm going to let you ask me the first because I like talking. Uh, so why don't you, you start do. and we'll go to a finance question second. Sounds great. So our first admissions question is from... Aruna, and I actually think I just heard you teasing probably this one at the end of the segment with um, Joy just now. So Aruna asks, we know kids who got 250 points less than my daughter on the SATs, but had slightly higher GPAs. Our county changed the GPA system so that it was a 4.0 credit for an AP course and a student taking the academic level course and getting an A gets an equal GPA. And an honors level course with an A gets a 4.5 credit. Hmm, that, that math doesn't make sense to me, but okay. Um, <laughs> thus, even though the AP courses are so much harder than the other courses, kids who choose not to take AP courses get a GPA advantage. How do colleges compare these kids' profiles? Right. And I knew this question was coming, which is why I did tease it at the end of that segment with Joy. Um, I often tell families right at the start of conversations we have that GPA is meaningless. And they look at me like I'm crazy. But GPA really is meaningless because when you tell me your GPA, uh, by definition, it's an average. Right. So the average doesn't help me to understand what your grades are in ninth grade, 10th grade, 11th grade, et cetera. Right. I don't get a good sense for how right. you are progressing over the course of your high school career. I also yep. don't know what the weighting system is for that GPA. 
does your school do something mm-hmm. crazy where they give four and a half points for an honors class and only four points for an AP class? Maybe. Right. And so I'm not yep. going to look only at that GPA, check the box and move on to other parts of the application. I'm going to try and unpack it. I want to see what classes yeah. are you taking? What are the grades you're getting in those classes? And what does that say about your readiness for college level work? So, mm-hmm. you know, as I alluded to at the, in, the, in the conversation with Joy in segment one, we really want to unpack simple concepts into their complexity so that we can see what's informing that number. Um, I also want to refer back to the, the, the first part of Aruna's question. She said, we know kids who got 250 points less than my daughter on the SATs, but had slightly higher GPAs. I think that's also a challenge when, I, when families sort of say, my student has this record, another student has that record. How did that kid get in when my student didn't? What we're missing is yeah. all of the other components of the application, the essays, right. the letters of recommendation, the extracurricular involvement, uh, the potential mm-hmm. institutional priorities. Maybe it's a recruited athlete. Yeah. Um, maybe there's a development interest, right? There might be a legacy mm-hmm. connection. So we can often only ever see as outsiders um, within a school community, the numbers, the grades and the testing. And we don't see all the stuff that goes into the app. So I I think we always have to be careful about really reducing the conversation to simple principles when it is quite complex. And I think students and families can take heart that we do put a lot of uh, analysis into the complexity of that process. Yep. All right, Shannon, I got one from Jessica for you. Jessica's daughter lives with her. Uh, but she makes more than her dad, right? So, so Jessica makes yeah. more than uh, her ex-husband. Um, yeah. Her daughter spends summers with Jessica and then the weekends with her dad. She's wondering if she can just put his information on the FAFSA, presumably because he's got a lower income than she does. Right, yeah. So unfortunately, the answer is no. Um, or, or you could, Jessica, but it wouldn't exactly be legal, so I wouldn't. Um, so when parents, when a student's parents are not married to each other, the FAFSA specifies that they want the financial information of the custodial parent. Now, they don't care what any actual custody agreement says. The custodial parent for FAFSA purposes is the parent who the student lived with the majority of the time in the past year. It's as simple as that. So Jessica says that her daughter spends, I think, summers and weekends with dad. So presumably then she's spending the majority of time with mom. So mom is the custodial parent for FAFSA purposes. Um, So even though mom makes more money, she needs to go on the FAFSA. Otherwise, it's fraud. If you were to get caught lying, you know, there's a threat of expulsion in the most weird extreme circumstances, actual jail time. So you, you don't want to <laughs> go there lying on a federal form. Um, now, if and I, Jessica does not specify, uh, I think, how old her daughter is, where they're at in the process. If right. you're thinking about this early enough, and there is going to be a significant different difference in um, aid qualifications depending on which parent is the custodial parent, that is something that the family can consider changing. If you've got time to change who the student spends more time with in the year leading up to FAFSA completion, it's something that you might want to 
think about. Um, right. Obviously, there are a lot of considerations when it comes to custody, but, you know, if everyone lives in the same town and everyone has a good relationship and it's not, you know, making a huge change in the child's lifestyle, you know, it might benefit the family for the student to spend a little more time in the year with the parent who makes less money uh, if right. it's going to make a huge difference to the financial aid. So that would just be something for them to potentially consider. Gotcha. Not not a simple process. I think that, um, you know, even if no. the answer is fairly simple, I think, again, unpacking <laughs> that can be a challenge. Exactly right. Yeah. Um, so another admissions question, this one's from Anne. And she asks, if a student has virtually equivalent scores on the ACT and the SAT, is there any strategy in determining which score to send to each college? No. Oh, oh my gosh. Is that <laughs> I'm, it? I'm glad, so, I'm glad to give a little context. A so that's, that's one of the easier ones. Um, <laughs> I, I often describe sort of the ACT and the SAT as different pairs of running shoes that you're using to run a race. And so mm-hmm. they're, they're basically, it's about comfort and fit. If you feel more comfortable with the ACT, great. If you feel more comfortable with the SAT, fantastic. It doesn't really matter. What matters ultimately is the score. Now, if you do decide for some reason to run the race twice and, you know, take off your shoes, put on a different pair, <laughs> run it again, you're probably going to get about the same score on both, right? And that's the situation that Anne is in here with her student. Um, they got about the same scores on the ACT and the SAT. And there's really no meaningful difference whatsoever. Mm-hmm. I, may, I may, might even say there's no difference, uh, except for the scale is yeah. different, uh, in which score you report. So um, maybe look at which one is more expensive to submit. Um, you know, if you're submitting SAT subject test scores as well, you might want to also submit the SAT just so you can save on the score report because you're going to have to send something from the college board anyway. Um, but in terms of the actual score that lands on the desk of the admission officer, when they're reading that application, it does not matter whether it's an ACT or an SAT score, if they are equivalent there's no difference between the two. And that is true for every single school. Um, and someday, Shannon, we are going to bust <laughs> this myth once and for all. And okay. people are going to know that they can take either of these, just like it's perfectly fine to win a race in a pair of Nikes or a pair of Adidas, though I would prefer New Balance myself because I am a dad. Um, all right. Uh, we've got some fin- another finance question. This one's from Emily. Yeah. Uh, my child's father is refusing to complete the CSS profile because he doesn't want to pay for college. Will the college still consider my son for financial aid without the CSS profile? So it depends on the college. So most colleges just require the FAFSA. And that's what we talked about a couple of questions ago, the fact that the FAFSA just requires the financial information of the custodial parent. The non-custodial parent is invisible for financial aid purposes at FAFSA-only schools. Um, So assuming dad is the non-custodial parent, he doesn't have to complete a thing at most colleges. So at most colleges, you're fine. Um, But there are about 300-ish, they're almost entirely private colleges that require this extra form, the CSS profile. And most colleges that require the profile ask for the financial information of both parents, even if they're divorced. Um, And if both parents don't provide their info, the financial aid application is considered incomplete. A student won't be considered for any of the institutional financial aid that that 
um, college offers until the aid application is complete. It's as simple as that. Um, now, because life is not simple, <laughs> every college that requires non-custodial parent information will have a process to request a waiver of that requirement. Um, but the circumstances usually have to be relatively like extreme, like I've never met my dad or I haven't seen him since my parents divorced when I was five years old. I've got no way of getting in touch with him. Uh, Potentially, he was abusive, and it would be dangerous for me to get in touch with him. Those are um, very clear reasons why a, a college would waive that non-custodial parent requirement. They won't generally waive the requirement just because the non-custodial parent just refuses to fill out the form just because they don't want to. Um, you can imagine if a parent custodial or non-custodial could just choose not to submit their information and that would mean their child gets lots of financial aid, you know, nobody would submit their information. The whole process would fall apart. The financial aid process is essentially an exchange of information for dollars. If you don't provide the information, you don't get the dollars. Those are the, the basic rules. Um, now, I would say a couple of things that I have found to be helpful in this situation, which I certainly ran into a lot when I worked in aid offices. Um, yeah. Number one, a college will not share one parent's information with the other parent um, without you giving explicit permission for that. Um, so you don't have to worry about that sometimes. You know, dad doesn't want his ex to know how much money he makes. That's not going to happen. They don't share the information between the parents. And then the other thing is that simply providing your info on a financial aid application in no way obligates you as a parent, and parent, again, custodial or non-custodial, to actually pay anything. The college is not going to tell one parent, you've got to pay X amount, the other parent has to pay Y amount. They don't do that. They use both parents' information to determine what kind of financial aid they're going to offer, but then the balance owed beyond that financial aid, they don't care where it comes from. As long as somebody pays the bill, whether it's mom or dad or grandpa, uh, Mickey Mouse, they don't care. The college is happy. Um, right. So dad can fill out the CSS profile, never pay a dime towards college. And that is perfectly fine as far as the college is concerned. It that's might not be fine thinking. with mom, but, but you know, that's between them and their lawyers. Um, filling out the CSS profile changes nothing except that now the child can receive institutional aid, which theoretically everybody should want. Um, so, so that's the situation. You probably have to provide the info if the school requires that profile, uh, unless it's an extreme circumstance. But again, just providing the info doesn't do anything. So dad should not have to worry about it. And if he needs somebody in the college's aid office to tell him that, they will likely be willing to do that if, he, if you want them to call him. Right. And Emily, um, if you really need some help on this, I say download the podcast um, and send it over to your child's father and, and say that, you know, yeah. here's Shannon saying explicitly that you can fill out this profile <laughs> without having to pay for college. So we're on yeah. we're on your side, making sure that those forms get filled out to right. put, put uh, it make on you me. eligible for aid. Dad can call me. <laughs> That's right. And uh, when we come back, Shannon will be giving her home phone number over the air uh, and we'll be answering more of your listener questions. So don't go away.
Think you've seen everything there is to see in online television? Let us surprise you. Visit voiceamerica.tv today for sports, health, business, and more on demand 24-7. If you're a parent of a high school student, you've probably heard a lot of scary stories about college admissions, about the growing number of applicants, the shrinking number of spots, about how even valedictorians are being turned away. For families of hopeful college students, it's impossible not to worry. But at College Coach, we take the worry out. Our advisors are former senior admissions and college finance officers from all over the country, so they can give you advice that nobody else can about what classes to take, how to prepare for standardized tests, what options are available to pay for college, and most importantly, what admissions officers are looking for when they read an application. We've got more than 15 years of experience and a track record that's helped every single student get into college, most into their top choice schools. So make the decision to come work with College Coach and start your child down the road to the decision that really matters, the one in the envelope that says, yes. Visit www.getintocollege.com forward slash getting dash in. The Internet's number one talk station. Number one talk station. VoiceAmerica.com. You are listening to Getting In, a College Coach Conversation. To reach Elizabeth Heaton or her guest today, please call in to 1-866-472-5788. That's 1-866-472-5788. Or send an email to gettingin.voiceamerica at gmail.com. Now, back to the show. Welcome back to the show. Now, uh, before Shannon and I jump into more of your questions, I'd like to take a moment to put a spotlight on a little school uh, down the river, Willamette University in Salem, Oregon. It's not often you come across a small university that attracts environmental enthusiasts, varsity athletes, globally minded citizens, and fraternity sorority members, or a combination of all four. But at Willamette, one of the 45 colleges that change lives Students can have all this and more. Located in the heart of Oregon's capital city, Willamette enrolls approximately 1,600 independent thinkers who are eager to engage in small classes, close student-faculty relationships, and a collaborative learning environment. The university supports one undergraduate division, the College of Liberal Arts, but highly motivated students can work toward joint degree programs with the university's law or business schools. Economics and psychology are two of the university's most popular majors, but rounding out the top three list is Willamette's exceptional degree in environmental science. With a special focus on place-based learning and globalization, the environmental science program prepares graduates to become problem solvers and effective leaders in their fields. Volunteering is a common pastime at Willamette, and students can get involved in their local community through programs like Service Saturdays, Take a Break, which is a service-oriented spring break trip, and service learning courses such as Food Justice Practicum. Fun fact, although 42 different states are represented on campus, the bulk of students hail from California, Oregon, and Washington. Now, whether you're interested in Willamette or not, the spotlight has at least given you the right way to pronounce it. All right, Shannon. (laughs) Let's jump yes. into the Q&A. I know we've got a few more questions we want to jump through, so we'll turn it over to you to ask the next one. 
All righty. Christy asks, my children's K-12 is a public charter school. This school ranks in the top 2% statewide. This year marks their fifth school year. The school has oversight from the local school district to ensure the school meets district standards. All teachers are certified. For various reasons, the school administration decided to not go through the accreditation process. I am hearing that this could have an impact on graduating students' ability to get an athletic scholarship or that highly competitive colleges won't admit a student from a non-accredited high school. Can you tell me what the risk is to my children if they graduate from a non-accredited school such as this? Yeah, so so I got this question earlier today and I, I saw the word accreditation and I sort of scratched my head because it is not anything that I ever was aware of or considered or cared yeah. about when I was reading college applications. But... I lived in the read bubble when I was reading college applications and we're fortunate here at College Coach to have so many experts who worked at so many different places. So I put it out to the team and asked whether accreditation is something that ever came up in their process. Now, my colleagues who worked at Penn and Stanford said, accreditation? No, no, we never looked at that. So it's not something that enters into the admission process in our experience. And I think that's because when we're looking at curriculum, we can see things like AP classes, which are standardized across uh, the country. Um, We also make space for students who are homeschooled. And there's certainly no accreditation for homeschooling as well. We just want to be able to verify curriculum. So this is, again, a case where if we call back to that first segment, we're going to look at that school profile to figure out exactly what kind of courses are offered at a school and what the rigor of that school looks like. And this sounds like a great charter school that's ranked really high and probably is doing things really well. Um, Now, the question of academics or athletic scholarships was really interesting. One of our team members uh, said that accreditation doesn't really enter into the athletic recruitment process, but that newer schools need to engage in what's called new school registration with the NCAA. Now, the NCAA's eligibility center has to certify that the coursework that a student went through in high school prepares them for Division I or Division II college academics. And that's a lengthy process that involves looking at the course catalog, the academic calendar, the master schedule, transcripts, a sample student transcript and more. So sort of, a, you know, sort of an academic evaluation of the school. And it's something that needs to be initiated by the high school counselor who is working on behalf of a student to make sure that this school is being reviewed. So I would say, Christy, that if you have a student who is on target for D1 or D2 athletics, it's a really good idea to talk to your counselor about the new school review process so that they can start initiating that conversation with the NCAA very soon. Sounds good. And that, I, I love that question because I learned something new um, about yeah. that. You know, Reed doesn't have any varsity sports and, and uh, it's certainly not something that ever crossed my plate. But that's one of the wonderful things about being at a really diverse uh, set of uh, experiences among our colleagues is, is the opportunity to learn something every day. Um, all right. Let's do uh, and I'm interested in actually in, in the question that you this next question, because I. I get this question a lot and and I'm not ever really sure. So this is from Hugo. Um, Hugo says, if I apply early decision to a school, does that disadvantage me in terms of scholarships or financial aid? And, and, you know, early decision, you know, Shannon, is you, when you apply, you are saying, if I am accepted, I will attend. Um, And so you're making that commitment at the point at which you apply. So how does that affect scholarships and financial aid? Yeah, so I love this question, too, because I think that it makes sense that it would 
disadvantage you in terms of scholarships and financial yeah. aid. Uh, exactly. When we think about why colleges award scholarships, it's a recruitment tool, right? You know, they offer students that they really want to enroll a scholarship as an incentive to get them to enroll in their school over others that they might have been accepted to. So why provide that incentive to students that have already committed to attend? It seems to be like a waste right. of money. They, they already said, if they applied early decision, they said they're coming without a scholarship. So why award them one? Logically, it would make sense that early decision scholarship offers would be lower. So that's the logic. But I have tried really, really hard to find evidence of this kind of lowballing actually happening. And I've really found very little Evidence. This is actually another instance where the, the breadth of experience of our team has helped us. I have polled our whole team of experts who have worked as college admissions, financial aid officers at, I don't even know the number, dozens and dozens of colleges across the country uh, asking this question, like, did you lowball your ED students? And I heard about maybe just a couple of schools who at one point were maybe less generous with ED applicants. The vast, vast majority of our experts with all of their experience said, nope, you would get the same award at my college whether you applied early decision or regular decision. Um, one of our colleagues actually told the story of how one of their old bosses explained why they were just as generous to, to ED students. And his answer basically was, and I'm, I'm paraphrasing, but, but not a whole lot. He said, you know, if we didn't, if we weren't just as generous, we'd be great big jerks. <laughs> so that, that is essentially the, the explanation. Colleges do generally try to do the right thing. Uh, sometimes it doesn't feel that way. And I think there are things that colleges could do a lot better. But by and large, they are not intentionally trying to hurt people. Um, so with, with that said, uh, I don't think they're going to intentionally, in most cases, try to lowball you. I think that there is a major financial disadvantage to applying ED and that you give up the ability to compare, potentially negotiate financial aid and scholarship offers from other schools. When, you, when you're deciding to apply ED, you really have to think very hard about whether that college that is currently your first choice would still be your first choice if another school on your list gave you more money. You know, if that second choice school, would they pull into the lead if they give you a full scholarship? Um, if that's the case, you know, maybe you don't want to apply ED because when you do, you usually never get to find out what colleges two, three, and four on your list would have offered you. Or sometimes yeah. if you, you may have applied to those schools early action and you do actually find out the other offers, but now you've got to decline what's potentially a better offer. Um, and then the other thing is when you do a non-binding application process, you can often go back and negotiate scholarship offers because one school gives you a better offer, you can go back and negotiate. But again, with ED, you can't. So I would say, you know, if the money is going to make a difference to your decision-making process, then applying early decision might not be the right option for you. Again, not because they're going to intentionally lowball you, but you're giving up that ability to compare, potentially negotiate offers. So if the money is not going to be a deciding factor for you, you know, if you've got one very clear first-choice school, 
you've done the net price calculator on their website, which I think is key, and you are comfortable paying the price that it shows you, another school wouldn't sway you with more money, that's when I think it's appropriate to apply early decision. Um, at, at least from a financial perspective, I know, Ian, that there are additional considerations on the admission side that, that complicate things even more, yeah. but that's what I would say from the financial perspective. Yeah, yeah. We, we talk about similar kinds of things, but I think the finance thing is a really big piece for sure. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Alrighty, so I've got another one for you from Mike. Does job shadowing a professional in an area of interest such as dentistry help a student to stand out on their college applications? Yeah, I I really like this question. Um, mm -hmm. I, I like it for a number of reasons. One of the things that I ask, whenever a student says, should I do X activity to help me stand out on the application? I, I kind of like to pretend that we don't get a chance to tell colleges what we do. So let's imagine for a second that this student doesn't have an opportunity to say whether or not they've shadowed a professional in an area of interest. It's not going to be included on the app. We'll put aside the question of whether you can write about it later on. Um, is it still something that's worthwhile and why? Why would it be an interesting experience to have? What's the value to you? And I think if you're interested in doing something like being a dentist or becoming a doctor or something that requires a lot of investment and time and money and energy, it's a great idea to have some sense of whether you like that profession before you commit to it. Mm -hmm. And so a job shadow is a really interesting way, I think, to go through that process. Um, I had a student in my first year here who was trying to decide whether she wanted to go into animal science or be a graphic designer. And she did a summer uh, doing an art program. And then she spent her winter shadowing a vet at a horse hospital. And after those two experiences, she said, I want to be a vet. I am 100% sure. Um, and she applied for an animal science program at Cornell and got in and, and loved it. So that sort of experience of doing a job shadow is really, really helpful at giving you information about what you'd like to do later on down the road. Yeah. Now, the specific question about shadowing a professional area of interest like dentistry, you know, colleges aren't going to be particularly concerned whether a student is interested in becoming a dentist or a doctor when they're applying for college because that process is still four years away. They still have to go through their college classes. They still have to do the requirements that are going to be set forth by uh, dentistry schools or medical schools. So it's not really something that I think colleges are specifically interested in, except that they do like to see students that are taking initiative, that are self-advocates, mm -hmm. that are exploring professional opportunities. So in many ways, the soft skills that you get from initiating a job shadow and taking advantage yeah. of it and making it structured really show the kind of student that you can be at the college level. So, you know, it's, it's, I think it's a complicated answer, but really what I, I always tell students to do is let's strip away that sort of, will this help my application and say, will this actually help you? And if the answer to that yeah. is yes, then you can really throw yourself into it. And then the way that you represent it on your application can feel much more authentic, whether it's something that you write an essay about or more likely something that you include on your activities list or even something that your counselor mentions in your letter of recommendation because you've talked to your counselor about this really cool job shadow that you had, right? So I, I think the authenticity helps to drive the role that something like this will play in the application process. Yep. Sounds All right, good. Shannon, we're, we've got about two minutes left and we've got a closing. Is there one of these questions, and we're looking at the same sheet here, that you feel yeah. like you can do in 60 seconds? 
Yeah, do the do Craig's. All right, Craig wants to know how do five twenty nine plans owned by other family members affect financial aid evaluation? Okay, so I would love to have twenty minutes to answer this, but the quick one <laughs> you don't have person- it. <laughs> is um, the the existence of the plans do not generally come into the financial aid process at all. When they enter the equation is once a um, somebody outside the family actually pays a tuition bill for you out of the 529 or out of anywhere else. Uh, it's the paying of the bill on your behalf. Um, when a bill is paid on a student's behalf, that shows up as student income on the financial aid application. Student income above about $6,000 gets hit very hard on the financial aid application. So if, um, if withdrawals from the 529 plan are going to be moderate amounts, total income isn't exceeding $6,000, does not matter at all. If these are going to be huge withdrawals uh, on an annual basis where they exceed 6000 it can really hurt you in terms of financial aid. But the good thing is that income um, does not kind of catch up with you on a financial aid application until two years in the future, mm-hmm. meaning if like a grandparent who has this 529 for you pays your freshman year bill, that hurts you on your junior year financial aid application. If they pay your sophomore year bill, it hurts your senior year financial aid application. And then there are no more financial aid applications. So grandparent, aunt, uncle, non-custodial parent, whoever outside of the custodial household, if they're going to help pay the tuition bill, pay it towards junior and senior years of college, and it has absolutely no effect on the financial aid process. So it's really the timing of when payments are made out of the 529 that matters, not that the 529 exists. Perfect. How is that? The one-minute version. So many things in life are about timing, and I think you timed that answer pretty well as well. Um, Shannon, thanks for coming on uh, to do some Q&A with us. Uh, We'll look forward to the next time you come on. Absolutely. Thanks, Ian. All right. That's it for today's show. Uh, Next week, Sally returns to the big chair. She's got a terrific show lined up to help students start thinking about their application planning. She'll lead a discussion on safety schools and will establish some ground rules for early programs like rolling admission, EA and ED. And for those of you with a college freshman starting school this fall, our finance team will join us to talk about the college bill. Exciting stuff. As always, thank you for joining us here on Getting In. Enjoy these last gasps of summer. And I'll see you right back here in two weeks for another episode of Getting In that I'm hosting. Uh, In the meantime, have a wonderful weekend. Thank you for tuning in to Getting In, a college coach conversation hosted by Elizabeth Heaton. Please join us again next Thursday at 1 p.m. Pacific Time, 4 p.m. Eastern Time on the Voice America Variety Channel. Have a good week.